On the 29th of January, 1982, almost 40 years ago, Stephen Callahan, was setting off home. It was no ordinary trip because he just sailed solo across the Atlantic from America to the Canary Islands in his 6.5 meter single-masted little sailing boat. This had been his boyhood dream. He wasn't too worried about storms that came and went, he was used to them, but he became very concerned when during one of them, only five days into his trip home, disaster struck. With a deafening bang, something big, probably a whale, maybe a shark, hit the hull of his boat and ripped a hole in it during the night. Finding himself knee-deep in water, he had to think fast. He launched his six-foot circular inflatable raft, and then in the freezing water, he managed to dive down a couple of times into his now-sinking main boat to grab whatever survival gear and various bits of kit he could. He was by now 800 miles from the Canary Islands with a few days of supplies and water. He caught and ate raw fish and he managed to rig up a little device to harvest about a pint of water a day from the salty seawater. After two weeks, he signalled to a passing ship but they didn't see his flare. This happened several times, but after a month, he had drifted away from any shipping lanes. Sharks began to be more aggressive towards his raft. As more weeks passed, he suffered with skin problems and dehydration, and his raft began to leak. There was one moment where shifting between survival mode and sheer despair, he lay back on his raft, gazing up at the stars in the sky, and the thought came to him, this was a view of heaven from a seat in hell. Exhausted, and having lost a third of his body weight, he was finally spotted by some fishermen off the coast of a Caribbean island, he had drifted about 2,000 miles and survived alone at sea on an inflatable for 76 days. This is one of the most exhilarating and inspiring stories of survival I've ever come across. How did he survive? How did he keep going? How did he make it in such extreme circumstances. I think there's a sense in which we love these kind of stories. Indeed, this guy's story, when he'd recovered, he wrote about it and it was on the bestseller list in the, the New York Times for months afterwards in the mid-1980s. 
I mention this because the next part of our studies in 1 Thessalonians here is also a story of extreme survival. In chapter 1, we looked at gospel power. Last week, we were thinking about gospel integrity from chapter 2. As we get today into chapter 3, end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, I want to call this gospel stickability, if that's even a word. Last time, we were asking the question, if you were here last week, we were asking the question, who can you trust? This week, our question is essentially, how do you survive as a follower of Jesus and keep going and make it to the end? I think there's at least three reasons why I'm referring to this story here as a kind of survival story. Firstly, these Christians are brand new. Some of you are as well. They are are literally brand new baby new believers. Secondly, Paul, who brought the gospel to them in Thessalonica, has suddenly been ripped away from them. So these baby new Christians are literally on their own. And thirdly, you know this now, they then faced significant abuse and opposition from within their own community. We we might say that the sharks were aggressively biting their raft. And the question is, how on earth did they survive? How on earth did they keep going? This passage is quite uh, an emotional one. But I've had a right job this week trying to work out how to approach this passage because of that. But here's what we're going to try and do. First of all, let's uh, fairly quickly try and see something of the background to this survival story. And then we're going to pick out three things uh, from this passage that we can learn from it that we all also need if we're going to make it as Christian believers to the end. And then at the end, I want to try and sum it all up by giving you a definition uh, to take away and remember and uh, stick on a fridge magnet on your fridge or something. So remember, it's Sunday today, so I hope you remember the definition at the end. So first of all, the background then. I want to call this Paul's roller coaster. Um, I think a good way to understand this passage is to see Paul's emotions ranging from what I want to call to what I want to call wow that's the roller coaster that Paul's on first of all just look with me at verse 17 of chapter 2 it says there in my version here we were torn away from you it was interesting we'll come back to this later but when Helen read more modern versions of the NIV talk about Paul being orphaned we'll come back to that This whole passage starts with gut-wrenching anxiety. We were torn away from you. Paul had to leave abruptly. And this separation felt for Paul and for them like a sudden and violent loss. But the point is that Paul then has no idea how they're doing. There's no internet. Sometimes we still don't have any internet. There's no email. And you can... You can almost hear Paul's groaning. Ah. 
chapter 3 and verse 1, his anguish is expressed when we could stand it no longer. Can you hear his heart? We don't know how many weeks had passed or months even when we could stand it no longer. We sent Timothy. Timothy was Paul's co-worker, one of them. And he, he's so overwhelmed with anxiety about his friends that he sends Timothy back. I love the double reason that Paul gives for sending Timothy back to them. First of all, in verse 2, Paul says, We sent Timothy, who's our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials or difficulties. So the first reason he gives is that he wants to help them and encourage them and comfort them. But then look at verse 5. He says exactly the same thing there. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, but this time his reason is, I sent to find out about your faith. He genuinely wants to help them on the one hand, but he also desperately wants to know how they're doing. On the other hand, both things are true at the same time. How are they weathering this storm? The pain of uncertainty and helplessness is overwhelming for Paul. I want you to notice too that Paul sees this in terms of a spiritual battle as well. His primary concern is not so much their circumstances. I, I want you to get this. He's not so worried about their circumstances. What he's really worried about is what their circumstances do to their hearts. He's worried that their fragile faith might evaporate. And he knows that they're going to be hearing those little voices inside that suggest things like, can you really believe in a God who lets this kind of stuff happen to you? Would it not be so much easier for you if you went back to your old beliefs to keep the peace? Are these strange teachings that you've heard about Jesus really true? Just look with me at the end of verse 5. Paul knows that behind all of these whispers, there is a tempter there lurking. I was afraid, Paul says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you undermined their faith, drawn them away from God. And our efforts might have been useless. At this, Paul, at this point, Paul simply doesn't know how they've responded. Are they standing firm or have they given up? And has Paul been beaten up and worked his socks off for nothing? Has the tempter won? I think Paul here, one writer puts it like this, he's worried that if he goes back and finds that they've all given up, this is going to feel to Paul like a short-lived holiday romance that never lasted. Our efforts might have been 
useless. Our labours might have been in vain. And then we get to verse 6. And the ah is replaced by the wow. But Timothy has just now come to us. I don't know whether that's that very morning and he gets his pen out straight away. It's almost, you can hear the joy and the wow in put, after all the ah. Timothy does return and Paul at last hears the news he's been longing to hear. They weren't just surviving, they were thriving. They weren't just coping, they were growing. They weren't just making it. These guys were absolutely smashing it. The trials and difficulties that they'd experienced had not shattered either their confidence in God or their love for one another. And more than this, more than this, they weren't cross with Paul for leaving. They weren't grumbling. Where is he? Why has he not come back? They continued to hold him in high regard. They longed to see and bless him as much as he longed to see and bless them. Their feelings, even after all of this stress, were completely mutual. In verse 9, the joy and relief that Paul feels is greater than the thanks he feels he can express. How can we thank God enough for you? It's, it's like the, the, the joy's in one side of the balance and the thanks on the other. How can we thank God enough for the joy that we know in the presence of our God because of you? And so Paul prays night and day we pray. What he prays here is really important. It perhaps actually sums up the whole joy and desire and point of this wonderfully warm letter. He prays that he'll be able to see them again. That's very personal. He's missed them. He loves them. He now knows that they've missed him and love him too. May the Lord make, where is it? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way. For us to come to you. He then prays that Jesus would so increase their love for each other that it would overflow. That's relational and ethical. This is what he wants their community to be marked by. And then he prays finally. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father. When our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. That's the hope of ultimate survival. So there's the background. Roller coaster background to this chapter. What can we take away from it? Our question is essentially how did this little battered group of believers survive? How did they make it? What kept them going? And I want to suggest three simple answers that are there throughout this passage. And they're also summarized, I think, in Paul's wonderful prayer here at the end of this section. And this is important because we all also need these three things. If we're going to survive and thrive 
as Christian believers, I hope these things will be a blueprint for our life together here at REC. So three simple things. Number one, we need God and his word if we're going to survive and thrive. The first obvious thing to notice is that when Paul hears the news of their progress, his first instinct is to, is to thank God. It's easy to miss this, but what that means is he traces the root of their stickability to God. When he finds out that they're coping and thriving, his first instinct is to thank God. If he thanks God for it, it's because he believes that it's God that's done it, isn't it? Now, we, we know that Paul has done things. We also know that they did things, but underneath all of their combined doing is the doing of God. One, one writer puts it this way, I love this. In one sense, and this is a quote, in one sense, Paul had every reason to be proud of the good work he had done in Thessalonica. He did, didn't he? To have introduced the gospel there in the course of just a few days and to have planted a church that was now growing under persecution was no small achievement. Yet, for Paul, there could only be thanks to God. For Paul really believed and lived what he preached that God alone was the source and sustainer of the life of the Christian community. The first reason these believers survived then was a supernatural one. Paul did things and they did things, but behind it all, God himself was at work in their hearts, in their lives to keep them going and to protect them as a community. Here's the thing. The way God sustained them was through his word. Just look back to chapter 2 and verse 13. There's another note of thankfulness. Paul says there, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it actually is, the word of God, and get this, which is at work in you who believe. We saw this back in chapter 1 and verse 5 as well. When the gospel came to them, it was not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, Paul says. The word of God is not just mere human words. It is living and active and powerful. Paul says, this is the word that has been at work within you. They didn't hear it just as Paul's opinions. When it came to them, it came with the stamp of divine authority. This is possibly something that can only be explained to someone who's already a believer <laughs> or or even this is this is only something that can be understood by 
a Christian believer. If you're a believer, this is why when you're hearing God's word, there's something in your heart that resonates and agrees and says amen to that. I get it. I know it. I, I grasp it. I see it. The word of God is doing its work within you. I don't mean that you don't have questions. A lot of you ask me really hard ones. I, neither do I mean that you understand everything completely and perfectly all at once. I also know, by the way, that for all of us, including me, the sense of this ebbs and flows in our lives. But you do know and you do sense to some degree that here in God's word is something true and right and compelling and life transforming. Friends, this is why we try to build our gatherings like this around God's word. Even when we sing in praise to God, our worship, we're singing the truths of God's words to each other. This is why it's so crucial for us, all of us, every day to be spending time in God's word. As we hear it, God is speaking to our hearts through it, revealing himself, challenging us, convicting us, encouraging us, drawing us to himself. By his spirit, we're seeing something of who we really are. We're sensing something of the love of God in sending Jesus to be our saviour. We're beginning to find our true identity and purpose. Our eyes are being opened. Our hearts are being changed by God through his word. Friends, we will never make it to the end without the word of God. The living, powerful, active word of God is our food and our fuel and our foundation. If we're going to make it to the end, we need God working in our hearts through his word. Number two, we also need each other don't we lots of commentators I didn't know this um, like this is old-fashioned language lots of commentators have nicknamed this letter the epistle of friendship I love that it is it's so true this is such a wonderfully warm letter from Paul to his dear friends And we mustn't miss the implication in that, that our stickability as Christians can't be achieved on our own. It's great to hear stories of individual extreme survival. But the gospel is not about being an individual hero. It is all about making it to the end together. I think the power of this is definitely seen in the mutual affection between Paul here and his friends in Thessalonica. We, we've touched on this in the, as we've thought about the background. 
he loved them and they loved him and the truth is they loved each other as well and as Paul rides this roller coaster of emotion in this passage the idea of togetherness is right there in the front of his mind it's there in his anguish it's there in his joy and it's there at the end in his prayer as well first of all we can see it in his anguish he describes his intense longing to see them again and, the, and his thwarted attempts to try and come back. We don't really know what that means, but he's, there's a desperate desire here. But there's another really important truth lurking behind Paul's words here. That little phrase in verse 17, we were torn away from you. Helen read it. More modern versions of the NIV use the word orphan. It's the, that phrase is the word we get the word orphan from. And here's the thing, like last week, if you were here, we saw something of how Paul saw himself as gentle, like a mum. And then we heard him talk about how he was like an inspiring father to them. But now he says that he also felt like one of their children. <laughs> In other words, Paul, he doesn't just see himself or see this situation as them, you know, he's in charge and they're dependent on him. It's like, what he's saying is he needs them this wasn't a one-way street but a two-way relationship one pastor i came across this week said this and i i was very struck by this the movement from responsibility and caring to dependence and being cared for get this, is an, is an essential rhythm in group life. And this is what he says, whenever I become involved in a group with people in our church, I make it clear at the outset my need for this rhythm. If they can accept me only as a father figure, I can't experience genuine community with them. We all need to have relationships in which we can be the children as well as the parents. You get that? so important yes Paul cared for them but he knew that he needed them to care for him too I love the I love that quote that this is an essential rhythm in a healthy community this is not just true between pastors and their churches this ought to be true for the church family as a whole sometimes you'll be the ones caring and giving and at other times, you'll be the ones that need caring for and giving to. Healthy community is not about power. It's about mutual affection. That means being willing both to know other people, but also it means being willing to be known by them. We need one another. But you can see this same truth also in Paul's joy. We've seen in verse 6 already that the reason Paul was happy and knew that they'd survive was because difficult circumstances hadn't destroyed either their confidence in God or their love for one another. This diverse little community of new believers drawn from different social and racial backgrounds had become a family who loved one another. 
But what really made Paul rejoice is that his love for them was reciprocated. He knew that his own heart went out to them. What he wasn't sure about until Timothy came back was whether their hearts also went out to him. What Paul is showing again is that he needs them as much as they need him. When he didn't know how they were doing, he was beside himself with worry. Now he knows how they're doing, he's absolutely over the moon. In verse 8, Paul describes this almost like a mini-resurrection. For now we really live because you are standing firm in the Lord. In all of his problems and challenges and distress and persecution, when Paul hears that they're doing well, he felt like he was fully alive. Now, I'm really struck by the fact that Paul's own well-being is so closely tied to the well-being of others. Do Do you get that's the point I'm trying to get to you? And I want to say that isn't this the total opposite of the way our culture operates? We we get taught and we tend to believe that our happiness is found in being self-fulfilled, don't we? Follow your dreams. Be whoever you want to be. We're, We're taught, it's the air that we breathe. Search for the hero inside yourself, you know. Look inside. If you want to be fulfilled, look after number one. But Paul somehow lives in a way where he's realised that his true fulfilment is found in pursuing that in the joy of others. This togetherness, then, is not just a two-way street where they need each other, but this is also a community where each one strives to find their own joy in maximising the joy of the other. And don't forget, we're talking about survival here. (laughs) I think the point here is that don't we destroy ourselves when we're selfish? Inward-looking, true flourishing, true human flourishing can only be found in mutual affection and unselfish service for others. If we are going to make it to the end, we need one another. Lastly, number three, we got there in the end. We need perspective. The final thing, well, it's not the only thing, I've I've, I've kind of found three but one of the things that seems obvious to me in this passage is the importance of perspective I wish we had more time to unpick this I wish we could have like done one Thessalonians like over a year (laughs) Uh, on that note read this again this week and you go through it line by line because we haven't had time to today (laughs) this is a phenomenally important passage Paul says basically two things here, and this is the phrase I want to use, and it won't come on the screen, so prick your ears up. 
here's what I want to say. This, this is Paul's approach here through all this letter and in this section. What he's saying to me is, friends in Thessalonica, friends in Rotherham, don't be surprised by your difficulties. And keep your eyes fixed on your ultimate destiny. That's the, that's the double-edged perspective that Paul is trying to bring. Don't be surprised at your difficulties and keep your eyes fixed on your ultimate destiny. So the first part of that, in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, Paul reminds them that trouble and disappointment and opposition will come. He wants to send Timothy so that no one will be unsettled by these difficulties. And he says in verse 3, you know quite well that we were destined, destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. I mean, what a, what a message that is. Come, come and follow Jesus, guys, and it will be nothing but trouble. He, we kept on telling you that, you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know, he was a prophet. You're going to be persecuted. That's exactly how it played out. Paul's trying to say to them, don't be surprised. Jesus said this to his disciples, didn't he? The same thing. I, I, I want to warn you in a friendly way. There are Christians who seem to teach that if you follow Jesus, he will make everything in your life successful and good. And I want to tell you, that's a lie. <laughs> and it's a really damaging lie because what happens then when trouble comes is that you think that Jesus has abandoned you. The truth is, we are caught up in a broken world like everyone else is. We, we also have spiritual enemies who hate God and his word that is so precious to us and that we're therefore in a battle. If we're not prepared for that, we'll be totally overwhelmed when life gets hard. Maybe we'll even come to the conclusion that God has abandoned us. It seems very significant to me that Paul kept on telling them that this would lead to trouble. There's no small print for Paul. He's up front, straight up front with them. This is so worth it, but it will be costly. We need to remember that we're not in heaven yet. I, I think that's the problem. I think, I, I think when Christians teach that follow Christ and your life will be a bed of roses, it, it, it's because they're trying to teach that you can have heaven now. We will get there. I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but we're not there yet. God is with us in every moment of our difficulties. He knows every sorrow. He bottles every tear. And he is working it all out somehow for our good and for his glory. Don't be surprised. If things are hard, I'm not saying look for hardship, but don't be surprised if difficulties come. 
And the other side of it is keep your eyes fixed on your ultimate destiny. We entitled this series The Return of the King and the truth of this statement underpins Paul's life even as he faces the reality of daily struggle himself. Let me give you two examples. The first is found at the beginning in, in, in verse 19, chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul is looking forward to the day when these dear struggling new believer friends of his will be his prize. He's so proud of them now, but he his ministry is like got this perspective that he's got his eye on that day when they will be the crowning glory of all his work, all the beatings, all, all the preaching, all the ministry when Jesus returns. Paul is a man who is not going to reach heaven on his own. He's going to take other people with him. And when they all get there, the pain will be forgotten and they themselves will be the constant reminder that every tear was worth it. This exact same idea is found in the prayer at the end as well. He longs for them to make it to the end. Verse 13. We read it already. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The first time Jesus came was only 20 years before this and he'd been rejected and as, as he died for their sins in humiliation on a Roman cross. But when he comes again, it will be as the risen and conquering king and they will be saved and evil will be destroyed and love and peace and joy will win. I want you to remember this day so let me give you a definition and with this we're done. I want you to remember this definition and take it away and I want you to remember it and I'm serious when I say this. I want you to remember this definition for the rest of your life. Until the day when we too meet and hug one another in the presence of Jesus. From this day, 
to that day, remember this. A Christian community is a word-saturated relational group that faces the reality of life as it is with a deepening love for one another and a shared ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. That is a definition of a church family. A Christian community is a word-saturated relational group that faces the reality of life as it is with a deepening love for one another and a shared ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. By God's power and grace, this is how they survived. This is how they made it. And this is how they would make it to the very end. And friends, if we're going to make it, if we're going to keep going, if we're going to survive, we need to keep these five things in mind. Growing in the word, growing together, growing in resilience, growing in love, and growing in hope. I'm going to give you a spoiler now. All of this is from God. Look at what it says at the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24. The one who calls you is what? Faithful. And he will do it. Amen? Amen? Let's uh, pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your powerful, incisive word. We, we thank you that it is those things because it comes to us from you. Father, we pray that you would burn these truths into our heart, that you would help us to know the hope to which you've called us and the faithfulness that is in your heart towards us. Father, we thank you for Jesus who died to save us and who rose again and ascended to heaven and who one day will return. Father, we pray that you would increase our love for one another, that you would increase our hope in the Lord Jesus, that you would help us to put deep roots down into your word, and that you would help us in your faithfulness to make it to the very end. Father, we thank you and we bring our prayers in the powerful name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.